Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. And so it is a blessing to be here. If you want to turn into your Bibles, into Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, and we will be reading that in just a moment. But before we get there, let me just kind of start off our sermon today. I'm going to be calling this pragmatic evangelism, pragmatic evangelism, something that that you can uh, use in your own personal witnessing. I have a feeling that that uh, Pastor Derek has already uh, preached this sermon because I see your who's your one out here in in the hallway, but I'm going to try to put a little different twist on this passage. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When I was young, I wasn't a very good athlete. Those of you out here in the crowd and those of you on Facebook, you look at this and you go, how can that be? How can he not be a good athlete? Uh, But I was not a real good athlete. I loved baseball. Baseball was kind of my my thing at the time until I got a little older and learned how to shoot a basketball. But I love baseball because one thing about baseball is you're, you, you're supposed to get your uniform dirty. Uh, but there were many, many games where my mother, I would come home and take my uniform off and she would go, I think we'll wait till next week to do this, clean this one, because it never really got dirty. Why? It's not because I I didn't want to be in the game or be part of the game, but my athletic ability really didn't uh, tend to that kind of dirtiness. You see where I'm going with this, right? There was was many a game that was like that. In football, I, I love football, as he mentioned. I'm sorry, I am an Alabama fan, but I do bleed red. Uh, I root blue and bleed red, uh, but um, I love football, and I, I hate that the fact that they're talking about, at this point, not having football this uh, fall. This is going to be crazy in my whole entire life. That has never happened, I don't believe. But in football, there are players, and there are cheerleaders. And if I was to mention that to you this morning like that, you would know the difference. You know the difference between football players and cheerleaders. Some would say that they're both important to the game. And in essence, that's probably true, that they're both important to the game, but when it comes to the spirit of the game. But when it comes right down to it, football, you cannot have football without a quarterback who knows what he's doing and a 280-pound lineman, Craig, that can actually block for that quarterback. There is no football game without at least those two. Jason Gaston, a well-known pastor down in North Carolina, he said this of his, of his daughter who was cheering on her older brother back in the backyard. She came in and she said, Hey, Daddy, did you see me playing football out there with Holt? And he looked at her and he said, Well, actually, sweetheart, Holt was playing football, you were just cheering. Now that seems kind of mean in a way, but think about it. It's a good thing that she knows the difference between playing football and actually cheering on the players on the field. And as a transition, I want you to think about this. That I think, and I'm afraid that the church with the big C has come to a point in its 2,000 year history that the difference between evangelism and knowing about evangelism has come to a huge, huge, huge crossroad. 
It has become a spectator sport, really, in some ways. It has, it's almost like many would sit back and let other people do it, or they go, well, they, he's the quarterback, or, or he's the lineman, or she's the cheerleader, but I'm not really involved in that. The struggle is real, folks. So many Christians have been taught in their Christian life that we must pray, yes, we must give to the church that we might do evangelism, and we must cheer on those evangelistic efforts, but should we really do the work of evangelism? And it's not necessary, necessarily put into our hands to plow at that, to share Christ with that, that one person that God has placed on our hearts to share Jesus. I don't doubt that we understand the essence of evangelism. We, we know what it, what it means that people need Christ, but do we possess the urgency to actually do the work of evangelism in our own entire lives? Think about it in this way. You can ask me to do anything in the church. Ask me to do anything. I will, I'll sing for you. You wouldn't want me to, but, but I would sing for you. I would sing a solo. I would work in VBS, and I've done it many, many years. They say VBS is the only time that adults can act like idiots and nobody really cares, right? Uh, VBS used to go on two weeks in a row. Do you remember that, folks? Any of those folks? I'll work in VBS. I will visit the elderly. I would, I would even feed them. I've done that. I'll pull weeds outside the church, around the playground. I would even walk the plank for Jesus. You show me where the plank is and I will walk it. But to share the only thing that really and truly and truly, truly matters in the kingdom of God, that, that message that God has given us, I just don't know if I can do that for Jesus. That's what many people would say. God, I'll do anything, but don't make me share Christ. For my initial challenge for you today is this, that God did not place the tool of evangelism through the gospel in our hands so we must politely or would politely sit upon those proverbial spiritual hands for a lifetime waiting for that perfect time, that perfect place, that perfect situation to share Christ. Rather, remember this, folks. If you don't hear anything else today, remember this. Jesus came, he lived, he served, he suffered, he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected on the third day in order that believers would share that message. That it wouldn't be something that we sit on our hands. We must understand the urgency of the gospel. And I know this morning I'm probably preaching to the choir because of the small crowd, but God wants us to remember the importance of that. It is our primary responsibility of the, the church to share the gospel to the nations. Whether one agrees with you politically, we're all different in that way, right? Uh, whether one connects with you socioeconomically on that level, or whether they stand with you theologically. It doesn't really matter. All peoples, all nations, states, counties, cities, towns, crossroads, and the word I learned in eastern Kentucky and uh, West Virginia, the hollers where people live. We must share Christ with them. And if Jesus' final words were, and they were, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, should we not take that so critically important? 
Let's read together Mark chapter 2. And if you would stand with me in honor of God's Word, and let's read that together. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible this morning, and whatever uh, version that you have this morning, you can follow along on the screen or read out of your own. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, when he entered Capernaum, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered there that there was no room, more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came to him bringing a paralytic. Carried by four of them, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof from him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat from which the paralytic was lying, seeing their faith. Hear that, folks. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were what they were thinking within themselves, and they said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say to him, get up, take your mat, and walk, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up your mat and go home. Immediately, hear that word, immediately, he got up, he took the mat, and he went out in front of everybody. As a result, they were astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Can we pray together? God, I pray that right now, for just these few moments, that we will concentrate on this passage of Scripture that you have given us today. I pray that it would pierce our hearts, that it would melt away the, the fears that we have of sharing Christ. And I ask that every single person in this room, anyone that's listening on Facebook, would be pierced by your word. I pray that you would remove me, that the Holy Spirit would be the only one who speaks. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. In his name alone, amen. You may be seated as we continue to study his word together. So in this passage, there are really two focuses on, on what is going on here. First of all, the authority of Christ to heal and to forgive. Now, those are two things, but those are in one. I put those in one. His sole authority to be able to do that. He is God. He is fully God. He's fully man, and he can do both of those, and he chose to. Mark focused on that. But he also focused on the sheer determination of these four men. Now, there's a big crowd, but there are also four men who particularly brought this paralytic to Jesus. And I want to, I want to share with you, first of all, that the need of man should drive our mission, personally, should drive our mission and the, the church to share the gospel of Jesus. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 2, and it says, and he spoke the word to them, or he preached the word to them. Now, I asked the question to myself, why was he doing that? Why was he spending time teaching the word to the people who were there? Why wasn't he just hanging out? Why wasn't he just grilling with the people? Why wasn't he just playing games? Why wasn't he, he, he doing, playing camel polo? Whatever they did back then, why, why did he not just hang out with them? But according to verse 129, Jesus and his disciples were staying at Peter's mother-in-law's house, at which Jesus had already healed her of a fever. So people had heard about Jesus. And she, she, it says in that scripture that she immediately got up and began to work in the kitchen or in the house. She, she immediately got up from that, that sickness and began to do work. But I don't know about you, but when anything goes on in a neighborhood, pretty much everybody knows about it. 
I don't know about your neighborhood, but my neighborhood, if something happens to one of my neighbors, you hear it on Facebook, you hear it from the people out on the street talking, it doesn't matter who it is, they know what's going on. I don't know what kind of neighborhood you live in, but my wife was that type that she loved to know what was going on in the neighborhood. If a fire truck went down the road, she'd go, I wonder where they're going. If somebody's walking down the road, I'm like, who's that walking on our sidewalk? And I'd always look at her and go, it's a free country. They, they, can, they can walk down our sidewalk. And after a while in our marriage, she would be peeking through the little line, the blinds to see what's going on outside. And I began to call her Mrs. Kravitz. I don't know if you remember her back in, in, uh, in the day in the 60s uh, from, from Bewitched, but I began to call her that. But everybody knows everybody's business in the neighborhood pretty much. And this is, there's no difference here. There's no reason to believe that everybody in the neighborhood heard about this healing, and I mean everybody. So take a moment in your neighborhood, think about your community, your neighborhood, the people that you are around, the people that you work with, and ask the question, what is the greatest need of your neighborhood? What's the greatest need of your friends? What is the greatest need of the people that are around you? And ask the question, is it shelter? Maybe, maybe not. With COVID, people may have lost their homes. We don't know. Is it food? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on the situation. I know people who need help with that. Is it a job? I would say in an unemployment with the double digits, I would say there are people who need a job. Is it companionship? Because true friendship and a really good marriage are really hard to come by. Amen? It's just hard nowadays. And I would say most people about three months ago, the greatest need of man was toilet paper. <laughs> was it not? <laughs> or people thought so anyway. But what is the greatest need of man? Think about that. The community heard about Jesus. They heard about Peter's mother-in-law being healed and possibly already heard about the name of Jesus and his teaching. And couple these together and the entire village, they, they come out to see Jesus. They come out to see this man who, who healed her. And they brought other people to be healed of some disease, some ailment. They brought someone else to be healed, a friend, or they were just curious about that someone who had told them about Jesus. Regardless, everybody was there. No one stayed home. It was exciting. Something was going on in the neighborhood. And in this case, they were all crammed in this one little house that Jesus was teaching in. Nobody could get in. There, were, there was people standing outside, and they wanted again. But regardless of this, this heartfelt need of Jesus, I submit to you today that in our culture, hear me out, I believe that the people that you work with, the people that you love, the people that you, you uh, are a family with, the people maybe even in your church, they don't know the greatest need of man. If you ask them, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need today? I don't believe that they would say, I need a personal relationship with the holy God, the holy God, the creator of the universe. I don't think they would say that. Most people would not. So that really hit me, that I would ask my neighbor, what is your greatest need? Think about this idea for a moment. Everybody needs a platform. In America, if a, if a company doesn't have a platform, they're, they're dead in, in this world of advertisement. Think about it. Nike, they say, just do it. And I would say that it's not very smart to tell middle schoolers that. Uh, Coca-Cola wants to keep you hydrated. Uh, Capital One says, what's in your wallet? To echo my father a few years ago, I was sitting there with him at a Christmas time, and commercial came on, and they said, what's in your wallet? And he goes, none of your doggone business. <laughs> But uh, Facebook, and praise the Lord for this, wants to, you to help keep up with your children and your grandchildren. 
So I ask you, what is your platform? What drives you? What, what helps you realize the need of man? What is your greatest motivation for the need of man? Therefore, we ask the question. And I think I have a picture here. The next slide, I believe. Maybe, is there a picture in there? Did we grab the wrong one? No, there's not one? Okay. I want you to look at this picture when it comes up. And I want you to think about the people around you. Maybe too large or something, I don't know. Okay, no, that's okay. But what drives your quest for evangelism? Look at that picture. This young lady, she can be more than 18 or 20 or 22. I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but she's holding up the sign, I'm going to hell, and I'm proud. That doesn't make me mad at her. That makes me pity her. It makes me think about our culture and how it's changed. The people are not afraid of the word hell anymore. The hell is just this made-up place that the church made up 2,000 years ago and that Jesus made up. But I'm telling you, folks, hell's a real place. Jesus preached more about hell than he did heaven. And if he did, I think he was really trying to warn us that there is a place of judgment. So that picture's ingrained in my mind. That I would care about the people around me. So therefore, what drives your quest? We must somehow understand that the greatest need for every, every human race is our drive, the drive, the saving knowledge and confession of the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So why was Jesus preaching to them? <laughs> it's an easy answer. It was their greatest need. It was their greatest need that they would know about the holy God of the universe. You and I are called to convey that need. Secondly, the eager expectation of the four friends is the greatest act of friendship that I think that I can find in Scripture. Look at verse 3. It says, some men came bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. So there was a lot of people going on, coming in, and these four men in particular are carrying this, this man, we don't know how old he is, on a stretcher, and he's a paralytic. He cannot move a muscle. In, in, in the post-Christian world, bordering anti-Christian world society that we live in, Time is of the essence when referring to the souls of men, women, boys, and girls, going back to that picture. We tend to focus on circumstances rather than the urgency of sharing Christ, loving people enough to open the gospel light to them. We have many fears. You think about it. What, what scares us about sharing Jesus? It, it may be that we fear rejection, but I want you to understand that that I'm sure Pastor Derek has said this many times, that nobody's rejecting you. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting the message of Christ. So when you share Christ, remember this. Mark Cahill said many years ago, he said, when you share Christ, it is a win, win, win situation. Why? Because if you lead them to Jesus, you have won a soul to Jesus through his blood. But if you share with them and you plant a seed, it is a win. And if you share uh, Jesus and they say, well, maybe, let me think about that, it is a win, win, win situation. 
So never think that, that what you share, how you share, is a waste of time. But we have many fears, and one of them is rejection. Ridicule, persecution, lack of answers of knowledge, or maybe speaking to somebody that you don't know. You may be that kind of person that you have a hard time meeting strangers, or you can't just uh, make a conversation like I can. I can talk to that, that chair. I'm a single guy, so I, I, I talk to chairs quite often, actually. Um, now you think I'm a strange man. That's okay. Um, but we have a lot of fears. Well, not these four men. They were not afraid at all. They knew Jesus was there. Apparently, there were a group of these guys. They did whatever it took to get this paralytic to Christ. They had heard about it. And they said, hey, let's put him on the stretcher. And let's take him to Jesus. It doesn't say where he came from. They could have been from a surrounding community, another village. It doesn't matter. The truth is that they cared enough about their friend to put him on that stretcher, seek an answer for their friend. And little did they know the change that Christ would make in this man because all they were looking for was healing. So think about this. This situation here from the narrative, it seems very practical for them to bring Christ or bring him to Christ. Let's pretend these four men were more calculating in their approach to making sure that Jesus was to help their friend. How many of us would have seen the crowd and we looked at the crowd and said, I'm not wasting my time. I'm not standing in line to maybe hear a little snippet from Jesus. I'm just going to go on my day. Saturday, I just want to chill out. I don't, I don't want to deal with this, so I'm going to move on. But I'm going to tell you something, not these four guys. But let's pretend that they're more calculating. And let's just call the paralytic. I'm going to give them names today to kind of, kind of help us see this more clearly. This guy's name is Bart. I don't know where Bart came from. I made it up. So Bart is on the stretcher. And his four friends, the one in the front right, his name is Gus. And he's a blue-collar guy, and he's a hard worker, but he lives strictly by the book as he carries the stretcher. And he asked these questions. Don't we need to be on the clock to carry the stretcher? Don't we need to worry about this unscheduled meeting? Are you guys union? Will we get in trouble if we carry this? See where I'm going with this? Man two's the plant manager. His name's Kevin. You ever met Kevin, the plant manager? All right. He's a good guy, but he's torn between two masters. And he says this, I represent both the owner and the union, and I don't know what to do here. I'm not sure exactly which way I should go. Do we have the resources, the materials, the manpower to fix this roof after we tear it apart? See where I'm going with this? Man three, the engineer. I relate to that. I'm an engineering degree. Maybe a little bit intelligent. Not me, but not very spontaneous in their approach. Well, if we have to take this guy to the meeting, we make sure that we have the formula right because a time equals distance versus velocity. Make sure we get there on time. I'm going to take my iPad, and I'll make sure that I draw that out so that we don't have any trusses in, in the roof so we don't tear it up. See what I'm saying? See where I'm going with this? Number four, you ever met a bean counter? His name is Doug. You ever met Doug, the bean counter? And he says, how in the world do you think that we're going to pay for this endeavor? Who's going to give up their budget funds to make sure this project happens? And anybody heard this from their father? Does money grow on trees? See where I'm going with this? Are all these questions legitimate at times? Uh, should they be asked in ministry? I would say yes. Are they always useful? Usually. Are they always practical in every situation? The answer to that is maybe, maybe not. 
They didn't ask these questions. They said, we're going to get him there. By the end of the conversation, they are arguing. And Bart looks up at them and he says, I'm a practical guy, fellas, and you are my friends. Would you please just get me to Christ? And wouldn't you agree with me this morning that I think the world is saying the same thing? I think they're saying, and they're looking at us, and they're going, you're worried about all these other things around you, and you're so bogged down, but I would ask you, would you please just show me Christ? Would you see, show me Jesus? Show me what it means to live out that life. Show me what it means to, to be part of him, to be a follower of Jesus. And as you do that, it opens up doors that you would never believe could happen. The most atheistic person is looking at us, and they're saying, I wonder if there's anything to do with Christ. Is there, is there anything real about him? Research shows, I got an email a while back, shows that 79% of unchurched people would engage in a conversation. And they might even come to church because you asked them to come. But the problem is, is that 39% of Christians have not shared Jesus with anyone in the last six months. We can all be guilty of that, and I'm not beating you up. This is on me. This is on me. It's like, as I read that, I went, when is the last time that I actually shared Christ with someone? And I, most of the people that I work with, or all the people that I work with are believers, but most of the people that I know are, are Christians. So when I get on airplanes, I make sure that the person, I sit on the aisle so the person next to me can't leave, and I share Jesus with them. Think about it. When's the last time you shared Jesus? And I'm going to skip that next slide, men, about Pendulette. But I want to ask you this question. What if every believer, if every believer was concerned about the lost? If every believer said, I'm going to do whatever I can do, I'm going to proselytize according to Pendulette, uh, the, the, the people that I know. Jason Gaston says this. He goes, he says, if the truths of God are just here in the mind and they never make it there to the heart, you're really not following Christ. If it's just information that we are consuming, the gospel transforms here. It must get from here to here. It propels the feet. I love that. It propels the feet. It goes from here to here, and it moves us forward, and the kingdom moves forward. We are not just cheerleaders. We are competitors. We are ambassadors for Christ. The world would be a much different place if we would just be filled with the Spirit and allow God to share Christ, that we would call upon the name of the Lord, and that he would use us as people of God in that way. Thirdly, real quickly, the obstacle in their way caused them to exercise their faith. I love this part of the passage. Look at verse 5. It says, seeing your faith, or seeing their faith, Jesus told the, the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So they, they lowered this man. I love this. Jesus saw what was happening. He knew what was going to happen. As a matter of fact, he knew everything that was coming that day. And there was no way that they could have found a way in, but they did. Pharisees and everybody else saw this man. And they heard Jesus say as he, as he was laying in front of Christ, I believe that he was lowered right in front of Jesus' feet. And Jesus looked at him and he saw it in his eyes. He saw the faith of God in his eyes. And he said, son, I see your faith. I see these men's faith. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I think about that. Jesus knew what reaction would come 
from the scribes and the Pharisees. He knew that the faith of those men would come from others. But the true test was that of the faith of the paralytic. I'm sure he really appreciated it. Hey, thank you for forgiving me of my sins, but that's not actually why I am here today. But the reason he appreciated it is this. In Jewish culture, they would say if a man is crippled or a woman is crippled or they have uh, some kind of disease or skin disease that they had sin in their lives, right? So if, you got, if you're crippled, you're a sinner. You have no chance with God. Jesus, the Son of God, looks at this man crippled on a, a stretcher and he goes, son, your sins are forgiven, crippled or not. Which means that the gospel is for all people. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees and the scribes said, why does he speak like that? He, he blasphemes. And then they said, who can forgive sin but God alone? And I say to that, amen. Why? Because they were proclaiming that Jesus was God alone and didn't even know they were doing that. They were preaching the gospel in front of everybody by saying that. And Jesus knew that they would say that. They were probably very few people in this room and on Facebook who would disagree with me that when I say God is the giver of salvation and there is very little that you and I, very, very little that you and I can do to gain that. Matter of fact, there's nothing. The only thing that you and I can do is understand that salvation is a gift and that you and I have nothing to offer Christ to make us love us any more than he already does. Because we, we try to make God love us, but we have to understand that the love of God comes from the salvation of Christ that was completed on the cross. It is finished. And I, and I think about that, and we, we work hard to become like Jesus, and, and we just need to remember that Jesus is helping us become like him on his own. As a side note, I, I'm also in the camp that Christ died for all men, that he not, did not just die for the elect, that he gave man a free will to choose and confess and believe, John 3.16, John 10, 9 and 10, and we don't have to keep buying our salvation. We tried to do that. I'll tell you a quick story because it's kind of funny, I hope, to you. So my daughter, she had a Corolla a few years ago. We leased it uh, for her to finish college in. And uh, at the end of that lease, she decided not to buy it. And uh, I had bought her some, uh, some windshield wipers to put on her car two years before. See where I'm going with this? And we cleaned out her car, or she cleaned out her car, and we traded the car in on another car to help them. She and her husband at that time now. And so about a couple months later, I'm down in Williamsburg, and a friend of hers is having a yard sale so she can go to um, a mission trip. So I said, well, I'll go with you, and maybe I can find something that, that uh, I can use. See where I'm going with this? And so I come to this yard sale. I come across these really nice-looking windshield wipers. And I'm like, I wonder if they fit my car. So I went into my car, and I checked my car to see what size I needed. Sure enough, they, they fit my car, a Toyota. Huh, that's funny. And so they said, those are 50 cents. And I said, 
take $5 or whatever it was to help them out. And then I'm carrying and my daughter comes over there and she goes, Dad, you know where those came from? And I said, where? She goes, the back of my car. <laughs> and so I paid 2 or $3 for them before and I paid $5 for them again. The same windshield wipers. Salvation is not like that. Matter of fact, you don't have to buy it. It's a gift, but we try to buy our salvation over and over and over again. But God knows our hearts. And in uh, uh, Psalm 139, it says, Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are always are aware of all my ways. The bottom line is, is this, is that God knew everything that was going to happen that day. Christ knew that what was going to happen. But let me tell you something. If all, if all of that is true, these guys still chose to come. They still chose to bring this man. Norman Geisler says this, Our acts are free with respect to our choices, but they are determined by the respect to God's foreknowledge of those choices. So it's a both and. So I call upon you today to think about that. Don't try to buy your salvation. Instead, remember that God is sovereign over, over that. So faith is the conduit by which we are saved, and God uses others to bring people to him. We are in the business of being priests of God. You think about this. You are a priest of God. And Christ has placed you in this world so that you can bring people to God and that God would come down to people. That he would speak to people. Think, why am I working? Why do you work? You work so that you can bring people to God and God would come to people. Why am I a mother of a young child? Because eventually you're bringing that child to God and God to that child. Why do I have a family? I'm bringing God to, or my family to God and God to my family. It's your job to be an evangelist in this world. And you think about it and you say, well, I'm not really an evangelist. I don't have that, that gift. But uh, in Scripture it says, do the work of the evangelist. And lastly, and I'll be finished, the men got more than they bargained for. Look at this. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take your mat, and go home. This section is quite interesting to me. The reason I state this is because Jesus would normally meet someone uh, who had an ailment and he would meet that physical need first and then he would talk about salvation. But in this case, he flip-flopped those. To prove that or to show that in Matthew 4.24, it says, uh, they brought him all those who were afflicted and he healed them. When evening came in Matthew 8, it says, they brought him many who were demon-possessed and he drove out those demons. Mark 5, it says, Daughter, he said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed from your affliction. Luke 8, Mary Magdalene was healed of demons. Luke 9, it says that when the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. In this case, Jesus sees their faith, the faith of these men, and declares to him who's laying on that, he says, Your sins are forgiven. First of all, I want you to understand that Jesus has the power to forgive sin to anyone that he sees fit according to their faith. 
And through this act of forgiveness, Jesus was drawing out. What he was doing, he was drawing out the evil hearts of, of these uh, scribes and Pharisees. And, and they were listening to him. And this act of forgiveness procl proclaimed the omniscience of God. In verse 8 and 9, he knew their evil hearts. He used this act to show the spectators the kind of evil which they were dealing with. The scribes had no desire to know God or to know Christ. And not only did Jesus' actions prove his authority to forgive sins, but completely decimated any criticism that those could muster up against Christ. In verse 10, and, but so you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told that paralytic, I tell you, take your mat, get up, and Go home. Okay, so this man and the friends, they received the best of both worlds. Think about this. He was forgiven him from the Lord himself. Jesus looked at him and he saw that in his eyes and he said, you are forgiven. Secondly, the action of forgiveness opened up the door for healing. Once again, we have no idea how long this guy had been laying on this mat. This mat. But we tend to look at life in this situation. We tend to look at life in really two different ways this morning. I want you to hear this out. First of all, we look at our, our circumstances and we focus on what we don't have or what isn't going well or whether we, what we don't have mentally, spiritually, physically, uh, whatever the case may be socially, and we think that everybody else has it together. We think that Bob and Sue, who live down the road, they've got it all together. Let me tell you something. I was a pastor for a long, long time. Bob and Sue did not have it together. They may appear that, but they have their own struggles. Or secondly, we live our lives without expecting God to do anything in our lives whatsoever. We just float along in the day. We, we, live like, we don't live like these four men. We, just, we, we go through our emotions, and we go through the motions of life and hope that God just gets us through this terrible, horrible, bad day. I've lived like that. All of us have. But don't miss verse 12 here. It says this, immediately, immediately got up. He took the mat and he went out in front of everybody. As a result, they were astounded and they gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen God work like this. We have never been in an experience where God showed up like this. And when this happened, the paralytic, man, he showed his faith. How did he show his faith? The confession of his faith was actually standing up. He could have made the decision not to stand up. He could have laid there and he could have said, thanks for healing me. Thanks for the forgiveness of sins, but I'm just going to lay here a while. But I want you to understand, he was changed. He was completely changed through those actions. So he got up. This is what the world needs, folks. We don't need a tweak of emotions. We don't need a tweak of religion. We don't even need a tweak of our own little hearts. We need a complete change of the hearts that God has given us. And I'm telling you, Tim Turner needs a change of heart every single day of my life. We need a change of heart. His confession of faith was his action by standing up. I know that I'm about to run late, but I want to ask you this question. When was the last time that you really experienced a holy God? When was the last time that you were in a worship service 
or you are at home in your own prayer time and you were just speaking to God and you felt God speaking to you and all of a sudden you just felt the power of God and the Holy Spirit pouring over your mind and your heart and your soul? And you had no idea where it came from. You don't even know why, but you knew that God was there. I'm afraid we don't experience that enough. I'm afraid that we don't allow our lives to really be in that situation where we want to hear God, we, we desire to hear God. But in this place, in this action right here, the people looked and they said, we have never seen anything like this. Boy, folks, I believe, I believe that God wants that for the church, but also believe that he wants that for Graceway. I believe that he wants people to look at this building outside on that road and say, I wonder what goes in on in there. And they are drawn by God to come in here and they experience God in here in a way and they say this, I have never seen anything like this. When asking God to do something through us, he has, we personally have no idea what God can do. These four men, they were obedient. He said, we're going to do this. Holy Spirit was leading them and they did it. Because of their obedience, Jesus not only gave this paralytic an ability to walk, but also he granted him a place in his eternal kingdom. None of us understand what our lives do, how we influence people, how, how we make a difference in the world. But I want to tell you, and I challenge you today, that you would say, God, would you use me in a way that, first of all, I don't even know how you use me, Lord, but I pray that I would be open to do whatever I need to do to be an influence of Christ on the world. Can we pray together? Father, I would ask that you would be here at this very moment and that your, your spirit would pour down on us. I know that you're already here in our hearts, but we tend to forget that you live there, that you dwell in our spirit. The Holy Spirit is coupled with our spirit to make us whole. So I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts and who we are to be changed this morning. Pray those who are watching on Facebook that, Lord, that you would speak to them also and that, that the, the Holy Spirit would just work in a way that, that uh, human beings cannot. And ask that we would be completely changed this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. And just As we come to the conclusion of this week's message, we pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the Word of God. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylegs.org. Click on Contact Us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.